Um, in the Gospel of Mark, if you're new to the Scriptures or new to church, if you were to turn your Bible, to, and if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one tonight, but if you were turning your Bible to the New Testament, you're going to find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are four accounts of the same story, and that's the story of Jesus' time on earth. And in Mark chapter 9, Jesus, uh, Mark records an interesting account with Jesus where um, this father had a very sick child, and he brings his child to the disciples. And he wants the disciples to heal, their son, heal his son, but the disciples can't. And when the disciples can't heal the boy, kind of chaos erupts. Right There's this confusion, the dad, the disciples, and the neighbors that are around witnessing this hopeful miracle. And about that time, as it's kind of chaotic, Jesus walks onto the scene because he's been somewhere else. And when he walks up, he's like, what's, guys, what's the confusion? Tell me what's happening. And so the father gives him a summary. I brought my sick boy to your disciples, and they couldn't do anything. And then the dad says to Jesus, if you are able. And when he says that, Jesus looks at the father, and he says, if I, if like this whole idea, like, you don't, time out, do you not know who you're speaking with right now? And what happens next, I think, is one of the most beautiful statements in all of the Bible. As soon as Jesus says, if I, the Bible says in Mark 9 that the Father immediately responded with, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. Isn't that interesting? I believe, but help me with my unbelief. That is why we're calling this series Knuckleheads. Right? That's like the foundation of everybody in this room is an unbeliever. Look at your person that you came with tonight. Looks about, look at somebody sitting by you or beside you. Point at them and say, you're an unbeliever. Yeah, doesn't it make you feel good to just poke at somebody? Right? Now, you may not be an unbeliever when it comes to salvation, but everybody in this room, we're an unbeliever in something. Meaning this, God is currently trying to teach every person in the room a new truth and you're just not getting it because you're on your phone. College kids, because you're on your phone. Or because you're a knucklehead, all right? Respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Don't make me start singing. I'll do it. I'll take away your insert, and you won't get credit, all right? But we're knuckleheads. We don't learn. Like, God is trying to teach us stuff, and we simply don't receive it. We just can't get it. Like, some of us, it's this idea that we circle. Like, if you look at the graphic, it's this big circle that just keeps going around and around. And some of us, we circle round and round finances. And some of us, we circle around relationships or parenting or some other identity struggle. And we just struggle over and over. So several weeks ago, on a Saturday, I was reading my Bible, and I came across Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 3. And this is the first scripture in your insert. So if you get your insert out at this time, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 3. And here, God tells Moses, and by the way, in this verse, the Israelites, Moses is their leader, have been roaming the desert for 40 years. They've just been wandering around because they disobeyed God. And God says to Moses in Deuteronomy 2, 3, you have circled this mountain long enough, now turn north. And when I read that, I'm like, man, that, is that not us knuckleheads? We just circle and we circle and we circle things. And God is saying to me and he's saying to you, he's saying to us, stop, enough, turn north. You, you've been going through this same nonsense long enough, turn, turn north. Now, I grew up in a small town. I grew up in a town of maybe 50 people. And this time of year right now in Light, Arkansas, that's where I grew up, they're cutting rice. Anybody ever grow up on a farm like cutting rice? Anybody? Nope. Everybody city folk? Well, here's what you would know if you came out to Light, Arkansas. Besides the mosquitoes, got these big combines in the field, and they're cutting this rice. But the ground is not hard. They've got it wet and soggy, and so those tires are just in mud. I mean, they're just throwing mud. 
And as they cut, they keep the grain, of course, but they throw this chaff out. And so in the air, you have this beautiful mixture of smells of grass, chaff, grain, and mud. And when I tell you about it, I can smell it in my brain. It's fantastic. Like, I wish they could have a cologne of this stuff. I would squirt it, and you would be like, you smell like a farmer. And I'd be like, yeah, it's great, right? All right? But that's the smell. Here's the deal. Not only is there a harvest in real life and farming, there's a harvest right now spiritually for, for us, for you. Like, the only reason that you would continue to circle this mountain is because you, continue, you choose to continue to circle this mountain. You're here tonight on purpose because God wants to teach you something new. And so we say together, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And so that's what we're going to do tonight, okay? Now, the way we're going to do it is I asked you guys two weeks ago if you'd take a survey for me at the 5 o'clock service. And so tonight's data is just 5 p.m., okay? So I'm going to put the graphic up on the screen. So after we got the survey from all the people at New City Church, what I did is I ran a filter through it, and I selected just the 5 p.m. folks. And what did you guys tell us was your top issues? And your top three issues at 5 o'clock were personal identity, anxiety, and anger. Personal identity, anxiety, or worry, and you're just mad, right? So you're mad, you're worried, and you don't know who you are, right? But we're going to go to work on that tonight, amen? We're going to go to work on that identity purpose. Now, as I was sitting at my desk this week preparing and studying about identity, and I'm I'm studying, I've got scriptures going, and I had this thought. My friend Mike Grubbs has just given me a book that he's asked me to read before it gets published, called Top-Down Thinking in a Bottom-Up World that's all about personal identity. And so I thought I could keep studying and kind of talk about this, or I could call an expert in the subject, Ph.D. smart cat, right? And so I'm going to invite my friend Mike Grubbs up here at this time, and Mike's going to talk to all of us about our identity in Christ. So can you guys welcome Mike Grubbs? I'm glad to be here. Are you glad to be here? Okay. Uh, a number of years ago, I taught in, uh, taught in a seminary in, in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, for a few years. And um, I'd sit down with my students, and, and they'd, they'd be eager to get going. And I'd say, okay, uh, we're going we're gonna to take one-word definitions of God. One-word definitions of God. And I'd take a big, huge whiteboard and went the whole way across the classroom and fill it up with one-word definitions that they would be shouting out. And they were all good. And, and, and we'd look at them, and I'd say, is, is, is love, is that comprehensive? Does that tell everything about God? No. Okay, so then we erase that one. How about sovereign? Does that tell everything about God? No. We erase that one. How about just? No, doesn't tell everything about God. So we get down to nothing on the board. Then I take the marker, and in huge letters, I'd write across that board, M-O-R-E. More. No matter how big you make him, he's bigger. No matter how powerful you make him, he's more powerful. No matter how much you can think he knows, he knows infinitely more than that. This God is unimaginably immeasurable. Are you catching that? All right, what's that have to do with identity? Well, it has a great deal to do with identity. 
What's it mean to be a child of God? God's children, should, should God's children have low self-esteem? Well, we shouldn't, but we do, don't we? Right? Low self-esteem. Low self-esteem starts with, I am not. I am not enough. I am not good enough. I am not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not good-looking enough. I don't sing well enough. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Mid-self-esteem is a little bit better. Mid-self-esteem says, I'm okay. Nothing to write home about, but I'm okay. Is that nothing to write home about even mean anything to most of you? Because that used to be when you wrote letters, you know, you'd, you'd only write letters home when you were excited about something. Okay. So, so, I'm okay. I'm nothing to write home about, but I'm okay. Is that what a child of God should be? No. Because this God who is more has chosen you adopted you into his family. Given you a name. Now, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, the very first part, it says, it is God's will that you be made holy. It's God's will that you be made holy. Now, when we define God, we use this word called sovereign. And I'm going to give you the hyper-theological definition of sovereignty. Are you ready? He gets it his way. He gets it his way. Whatever it is, he gets it his way. So if it's God's will that you, put your name in there, be made holy... Is there a chance that you will not be made holy? No, no chance. Okay, so we can breathe easy, can't we? Because we can't mess that up. I don't care how you try, you cannot mess that up because God says, I'm making you holy. We can make messes. But we can't mess that up. Because on the day that we take our last breath, we are holy. We're holy. So when you start with, I am not, He is making you. Whatever it is, fill it in. Whatever your deal is, fill it in. I'm not this, I'm not that. Fill it in. He's making you, you are. You are. Okay, Webster defines um, identity in a couple of different ways. In the second part, ooh, 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 I'm getting out of the range here or something. Um, in the second part of the, of the definition, it, it's, it's like this. You get this up here? There we go. All right, Webster defines identity in the second part regarding individuals as, A, the distinguishing character or personality of an individual. The distinguishing character or personality of an individual. What's, what distinguishes you from everybody else? 
That's your identity. So you think you are. The second part, B, is the relation established by psychological identification. All right, and here's how this works. You've been told since you were this big that you're not enough. You're not enough. It, it, it doesn't matter whether you're playing with the knobs on the stereo and when you're two years old and, they, and they're telling you that you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't. 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 Don't. Stop that. You're not good enough. You're not old enough. You're not enough. Okay, so let's, let's put it in there that we finally get this because everybody's telling us the same thing. We go to children's church and they, children's church teachers are telling us that we shouldn't do things and we ought, to, we ought to do all this stuff going on. And then we get to school and the teachers are telling us the same thing that our parents were telling us and the Sunday school teachers were telling us. And everybody's saying the same thing. And we develop an identity. All from the bottom up. All from people stuff. Culture stuff. Not, I'm not wealthy enough. I don't have enough money. I don't look good. I don't have enough. I don't have the right clothes. I don't have. You remember all of it? Nobody suffered from this, right? Okay. So, when your identity is like that, let's let's use one example. Okay. Let's say you get a negative core belief about yourself. I am a failure. That's not a positive belief, is it? Right. It's a negative belief. And it's a core belief because it goes right into your soul. I am a failure. Okay, so you, you set out a rule. You make a rule. I have to be perfect. That's your rule to keep you from being a failure. Then you make an assumption. You say, if I stay perfect, I won't be a failure. That's your assumption. The problem is, you can't be perfect. That's irrational to think that you're going to be perfect. So what happens is you prove your negative core belief. I'm a failure. And that reinforces and reinforces and reinforces until it becomes who you are. It's making sense. Give me some nods or something because I'm all right. Good. I'm not actually a preacher. So you got others, you got your family, you got your friends, you got all these people in the church, and they're all telling you who you are, and telling you what you're not, and telling you where you need to improve. And you get a, no matter how much you try, you still have this identity of deficiency. I'm not enough. Okay, so the bottom-up thinker begins with himself or herself, or the situation, or the circumstance in which you find yourself. And that's how you talk. You talk about that. A top-down thinker looks at it from a different perspective. A top-down thinker starts saying to himself, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold the phone here. I'm not the most important thing. My folks aren't the most important thing. My friends aren't the most important thing. The school's not the most important thing. The church isn't even the most important thing. What's the most important thing? God. 
So why don't we look at some things through his eyes? And when he sees you, and you see you, they are not the same thing. When he sees you, he sees perfection. That's hard to believe, isn't it? But it's true, because he's outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows the finished product. You can't see it, but he sees it. And he says, I'm going to make a composite of all my people, my perfect people, and I'm going to form them into a bride for my son Jesus. And she's not going to have a wrinkle. She's not going to have a blemish. She's not going to have a a wart. She's not going to have any such thing. She's going to be absolutely holy, pure, other, and perfect. And you're part of that. So when God sees you, He sees perfection. He does not see what you see. And the more that you can start seeing yourself through God's eyes and start thinking His thoughts about you, the more that you can do that, the more perfect you're going to become. It is the essence of the progression in sanctification, to use some theological words. It means you're being made holy. The more that we can identify through our God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and through His Spirit, the more that we can identify ourselves through His eyes, through His thinking about you, the more you do that, the more holy you become. It's rather astounding, isn't it? Let's look at some verses here. 1 Corinthians 2.16. So we, we don't, it's not up there. It's not on the thing. 1 Corinthians 2.16. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? It's a question. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Second question. Who knows enough to teach him? Then Paul says, but we understand these things, meaning spiritual things, for we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Now that word have means possess. We possess the mind of Christ. How is that possible? Because his spirit dwells in you. And if you listen to him, He's going to be whispering to you and maybe sometimes shouting. Stop thinking that way about yourself. I love you. I love you just the way you are. But I also love you so much, I'm not going to leave you that way. I'm going to make you holy. When you hear that as many times as you heard that you are deficient, now that becomes your identity. That becomes your identity. Now, is it a matter of faith? Of course it is. But all you have to have is a mustard seed. And your identity 
This change from bottom-up thinking to top-down thinking, your identity from changing from deficient to absolutely efficient and perfect and sanctified and being made holy, that identity, that's really important. And it's all a God thing. Notice, He's doing it all. All you have to do is cooperate. He's doing it all. All you have to do is cooperate. I love Jeremiah 31.3. Listen, listen to this. Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, and you, have to, you have to understand, you're part of Israel. You're not Jewish, but you're part of Israel because Israel is God's chosen people. Long ago, God said, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. How did you get to Jesus? You just woke up one day and said, hey, I think I'll believe in Jesus. No. He drew you. He wooed you. And you came. You cooperated. Yeah. And he's making you into a unique individual. There will never be another you. And he's changing that unique individual that he made through genetics. Right? We know what that is. Through genetics, he made a unique individual. And he's making that unique individual into the likeness of Christ. Now, what we miss about that is, is that's, we think that's, that's static. We're all going to end up looking like Jesus. No, we're not. Because he made you a unique individual. And that unique individual is going to be a unique individual made in the image of Christ. And he knows that about every one of us. And he cherishes that. He is madly, head over heels, Absolutely, totally in love with you. Just as you are. No changes. You've got to believe that, see? That's where your faith has to kick in. Okay, he says that. They say it every week in church. A lot of people say that. But I can't love myself. How dare you? How dare you not love what God loves? How dare you diminish what God will not diminish? How dare you challenge His wisdom in choosing you? That's an offense. Don't do that. He doesn't like it. So take that part of your identity and flush it. It's no good. Now put up Ephesians 1, would you please? One. We're going to read a couple verses here that are pretty unique, but pretty, pretty cool. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. Watch this. Why did he choose us? Why, why did he do it before the world? Why did he, he love us and choose us in Christ? To be holy and blameless in his eyes. 
What's he see when he looks at you? A holy and blameless individual. Because that's what you're going to be. And there's no chance that you're not going to be that. I hope this is beginning to maybe loosen some of these bad identity things in you so that they can be cleared away. Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and and without fault in His eyes. God decided in advance, watch this, to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. The last sentence. Watch it carefully. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. He is pleased with you. Not pleased with the you that you ought to be, pleased with the you that is. Pleased. He's pleased. One, one scripture, I can't remember where it is right now, but it just came to my mind. It says he sings over you with joy. What is it? Zephaniah 3.17. I like you. He's pleased with you. We get this attitude that he's disappointed. He's disappointed in me. I, I, haven't, I haven't stopped swearing yet. My mouth still gets away from me every once in a while, right? Or maybe a lot. And therefore, he's got to be disappointed in me. No, he's not disappointed in you. Jesus shed his blood so that that sin would be taken away. Jesus shed his blood so that that sin would be taken away, and then he sent his spirit. So you get sanctified, made holy. One day, your tongue's not going to be a problem. Well, I still do this, or I still say this, or I have a bad attitude, or I get angry, or I do anything. Like that. That's not what, it's not what identifies you. What identifies you is the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and Jesus being your brother and, and, and the guy that walks alongside you through everything. Never leaves you, never forsakes you. Is that good? This is what he wanted to do, and it pleases him. Gave him great pleasure to choose me. Ephesians 4.17. Is it up? Okay. With the Lord's authority, I say this, said Paul. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. NIV says, in the futility of their thinking. Futile thinking. Futile means doesn't produce anything good. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. They're hopelessly confused because they think that they can make themselves better. That they can improve themselves. Don't live like that, he says. It goes on and says that, you know, that, that, the, that because, of, because of their futility, futile thinking, they, 
they, they are, are darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Bottom-up thinking starts with you. Try to start thinking from the top down. Try to start thinking His thoughts. Remember, we have the mind of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We can do that. So that, so that one day, after you practice top-down thinking, somebody's going to say, nice weather we're having, and you're going to say, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Now, it's impossible to, to start every sentence that you speak for, with God in it. But get there. Right? You want to get there. The Gentiles, the people who are bottom-up thinkers, and it's possible to be a Christian and be a bottom-up thinker because you probably are right now. Most of us are. Till we get this idea in our heads and we begin to practice it. And it is a practice and it's not easy to do. But I will tell you this, the rewards are absolute freedom. Freedom. No fears. No worries, no anxieties, no anger. Bottom-up thinkers have, can only imagine what to do or say or think from five senses. The Scripture uses it in a term of sensuality. Now, we, in our culture, we have made that have to do with something sexual, but it does not. It had, sensuality means five senses. Hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and uh, what's the other one? Seeing. Seeing. Five senses. But we have a sixth sense. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. When we're born again, we can see the kingdom of God. We see a spiritual realm. We see a place, a throne room where God lives and dwells, and where He sends where Jesus came from to become a man and live amongst us, and leave His Spirit here when He departed. Yeah. We see spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm is where your thinking needs to come from. Your identity does not come from the world. I don't drive a fancy car. I don't have a big enough house. I don't have enough income. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. You, feel, you hear all the bottom-upness of that? I just made up a word. Bottom-upness. I like it. But from top down, God says, you have everything you need, and I will never, ever, ever allow you to not have what you need. It's amazing. It's amazing stuff this is. Ephesians 4.22. So what do we have to do? What's our part in this? God's making us holy. God is, God is, uh, is giving us his, his mind. And God is allowing us to think uh, top down. God is doing all of this stuff in us. What, what's our part? Oh, we got a part. We got a part. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. 
Man, I'm calling that bottom-up thinking. Throw it away. Throw it away. Which is corrupted by lust and deception. Bottom-up thinking is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit, what? Renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on the new nature, your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. I might need to read that again, because nobody's jumping up and down. (laughs) Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and and deception. Bottom-up thinking. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes... Put on your new nature, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You have a new nature, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Yeah. So we ought to start breathing that way, right? We ought to start thinking that way, right? We ought to start seeing that way. And the more that we do it, the more that we practice it, the more that we, man- that we, that we um, can do it, the more holy we become. And the power of the Spirit is released in us when that happens. Let me finish with this one scripture verse in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, beg you, plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Bodies is, isn't just arms and legs. It's, it's your whole being. It's all of it. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. By giving ourselves holy, yielding ourselves, surrendering ourselves to Him. Then he says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't copy the customs and behavior of this world. That's bottom-up thinking. Starting with me, starting with my circumstance, starting with, with whatever's bugging me, and trying to do something about it. Don't do that. Don't copy that. Watch what he says next. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Now that word transform is a word in Greek called metamorpho. Metamorpho. We get the we have the English word metamorphosis. It's it's the, it's the worm becoming the butterfly. It's a transformation, a change. Let God change the way you think and make you into a new person. What do you get when that happens? Watch. Watch what happens. What do you get when you allow God to transform you into a new person by changing the way you think? Then... You will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. 
How many of you, put a hand up now, this is not rhetorical, how many of you have ever wondered, what's God's will for my life? That's how you find it. Right there. Thanks for listening to me.